Welcome to IBN's presentation of Game of Thrones, Season 5, Episode 7, entitled The Gift. You can find all of our content, podcasts, articles, sports, entertainment, music, all of those things can be found on Iconoclastically Bombastic. You can follow the Amazon.com link and it links to cool stuff that you can buy through us and it will help us increase the quality uh increase the quality of the podcast and other things all things IB related. Uh, this is a pretty good episode. I liked it. It's probably the best and strongest of the season. When I'm watching Game of Thrones, there's always so much stuff that goes on that I have a hard time ranking the episodes and giving them grades because there's just so much content and I kind of view the episodes as like five different episodes squashed into one and sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's a bad thing but it's so massive i have a hard time viewing it as a whole entity let's start out at castle black john snow's heading off to the wildlings so he can bring them south of the wall to help fight the army of the dead and repel the white walkers if they actually come sam is alone with gilly and amon now i did like part of the scene there with the red-headed wildling that always gave Jon Snow a hard time when he was released and the reaction of the the people at Castle Black of this man being free and Jon Snow going off with them. That should be interesting. Jon Snow's gotten more interesting over the last two seasons, in my opinion, even though he's not one of my favorites, despite the fact that he is a fan favorite, especially with the women <laughs> that watch the show. And I think that's for obvious reasons for them anyway. I don't – the stuff at Castle Black this week, I wasn't really feeling it, but we can go through it. I mean, it's okay, but it's just not – I don't know. It just has never done a lot for me unless there's some action scenes or some conflict with Jon Snow. We have Aegon dying, and he gives a couple Easter eggs that are there that book readers would understand. He's talking about on his deathbed, Amon, he's talking to Jilly's baby or about – um, Jilly's baby, or Gilly. That's a Gilly. I think it's Gilly. I'm sorry if I said it wrong. Talking about Gilly's baby, and he likens him to his own little brother, Egg. Now, Egg is Aegon, who will become the king when Amon, who's the guy who's dying, I know this gets a little confusing, so bear with me, the guy who's dying, who's who's in the, who took the black, who's at the wall, when he refuses the throne, he's one of the, Amon is one of the few characters that has integrity, and they kind of talk about that after his death, that he's one of the few people, he knew he couldn't be the king, so he refused it, he has integrity, he's the conscious of the, of the black, of Castle Black. He is kind of a conscious in the way of the whole show, and he's kind of a historian. And they note the double Ds, as uh, Ball Move calls them, the two guys who write the show and produce the show. They they say that Amon is one of the few or may be the first character in Game of Thrones to actually die of natural causes, which tells you a lot about that world. But anyway, Amon is in this story, or Aegon, the brother, is in this story that's kind of graphic novels, and it's about the dunk and egg stories. You can kind of pick those up. They aren't really, they're like side stories, not alternative universe, but they're universe stories that you can find elsewhere um, about Game of Thrones. But anyway, the important thing to know about Amon and his brother Aegon, who they called Egg, is that they are the grandfather or uh, 
Amon is the grandfather of Ares II, the Mad King, who basically the show starts with the Mad King or the events kind of of the Mad King who killed Ned's brother, who led to the war, Robert's Rebellion, and all those things. So that's the relevance for that. Also, Aegon dying is the last Targaryen besides Daenerys, Khaleesi. So you have a Targaryen dying. She would be the great, great, no, the great grandfather of Danny. There we go. Is that right? No, Aegon would be the great grandfather of Danny, and Amon would be her great grand uncle. Now, see, that's the lineage thing. It feels like you're reading the Bible, but that's the significance of that scene. That's why it didn't do a lot for me because you had to go through all that to find it. I had to research it. I knew it was, they were talking about something, but you had to research it. He does tell Gilly to go south because it's not safe for there. We see later on that John, not John Snow, we see later on that Sam Tarley is told that he's running out of friends. He had John Snow. He had Amon. Now he really has no one. Later on, we see how Gilly is almost raped, and he's saved, and uh, Sam takes a beating, and he's saved by one of the dire wolves. But, I mean, it's just typical. I guess we're raising the stakes for Sam, but I don't find Sam to be an interesting character. It's kind of cute, but I just, eh, I don't feel it. After that, he gets he gets some. He's not a virgin anymore. But, at the same time, he's breaking his oath. So I'm supposed to sympathize with all these guys on the wall, but they can break their oath if they're in love. So to me, I find it contradictory. Either you're going to keep the oath or you're not going to keep the oath. And they're very inconsistent about what they do. I guess if you're in love, it's a greater cause than if you're in lust. But a need is a need, in my opinion. That's why some of these guys on the wall don't really connect with me. But there's an interesting question whether Sam and and Gilly will flee or not because it's not safe. He's outnumbered. She was almost raped. There's a baby to be considered. So next week or the week after, we'll see if she runs. So that's some, or if they run. That's somewhat interesting to me. But the stuff at the wall is just it's like neither here nor there. Uh, we have Stannis. Stannis has some issues going on this particular episode because they are running out of food. The horses are dying. Winter is coming. Ned is finally right. Or all the stuff that Ned was talking in season one to prepare for is finally starting to happen, or very close to starting to happen. The army's running out of food. The horses are dying. Davos says, hey, we got to turn back. Stannis is like, no, it's now or never. And I like this part. They made Stannis more interesting. They've given him more conflict in some ways. The stuff with his daughter, Shireen, has been great this season. They've given him more of a three-dimensional shape. They're good obstacles. Raise the stakes for Stannis. He's got to go and march on Winterfell, or winter will come, and who knows how long it will be until he has another chance to take Winterfell. But at the same time, he's got he's he's inferior here. He's inferior as far as his men fighting against the Northerners, who have the advantage when it comes to fighting in the snow and cold temperatures. He also has a disadvantage. When it comes to he's he's dealing with uh, mercenaries that he's hired that may not be as loyal to him as the North will, but because that's kind of a conflict too. Because what are the Northerners going to do? Are they really going to sit there and fight for Bolton? So that might be a plot hole there, but we'll see. Lastly, in that scene, we have Melisandre, who really disappoints me. She says that King's blood is needed, and Stannis's own daughter is put up as the person that needs to be sacrificed. 
Stannis basically tells her to get the hell out of there, and that was good for Stannis. Hopefully he won't come back. Stannis is power-hungry, but his power or his hunger for power is derived from the fact that he rightfully thinks it should be his. He didn't start the show trying to take Robert's throne. When the throne was lost and he realized what was going on with Joffrey and Cersei and Jaime, then he thought he, he – so it's kind of a righteousness thing. It's not that he's power-hungry just for being in the sake of power-hungry. So I don't think he's going to sacrifice his daughter. But it's the first time I really, really didn't like Melisandre. I like uh, a good villain, but that's just <laughs> that she's crossed the line in this particular thing, in this particular case. And it shows good character growth for Sanis, and it, sees, and it shows that there are lines that he won't cross to gain power. And in the world of Game of Thrones, that's kind of a big deal. When we actually go to Winterfell, we see Sansa in bad, bad shape. She is basically a prisoner of Ramsay. You can see the bruises on her arm, and she more than implies, I was going to say imply, but she basically flat out says that Ramsay every night is doing to her what he did to her last episode that got everybody up at arms. So desperately, Sansa goes to Theon and tries to get him to help her. In previous episodes, we had the lady from the north say, the north remembers, if you need help, you go to the highest tower, put a candle up there, and well, Sansa doesn't know, but Breen will see it, and she will come to your rescue and save you. Well, it looks like that might actually work. She convinces Theon to help her, and when Theon goes up to the tower... There waiting for her, him is Ramsay. And eventually we see how the woman from the north is flayed and tortured, and Ramsay thwarts the plan, and Theon sells her out again. But the, uh, what I do like about everything that was happening in Winterfell is that there's progress with Sansa's character. She stands up to Ramsay. She reminds him that he's still a bastard, and even the guy, the, the king's decree, Tommen, is a bastard. So his decree from King Tommen isn't legit. He is a bastard. He was legalized by a bastard. So Sansa is talking back. She is fending for herself. She goes after Theon. She's trying to uh, take power. She's trying to do something besides just be a victim. There is growth. I think people are very unfair to Sansa. She's put in horrible situations around powerful men and all the situations that people uh, would say that she needs to be stronger and she probably would have been killed in five minutes. The key to this world is surviving, and Sansa has managed to survive. Now, she needs to thrive more, but she is surviving in this world. And eventually, hopefully, God knows, she will have her comeuppance, or she will give someone their comeuppance eventually. I really have a problem with Ramsay just being given free reign. It's bad politics. His father, Roos, has told him it's bad politics to flay people all the time and torture them. He didn't even like what he did to Theon. He's been basically torturing, raping, just treating Sansa horribly, which isn't good for the North. He's flaying this woman who's probably a popular figure in the North and that everybody knows. Like, you're losing support. Maybe I, I can't imagine a leader as savvy as Roose Bolton would just let his son have free reign and do all these things. But it fits the plot, so I think they're allowing it within the show, even though it really is a major jump in logic and uh, somewhat of a plot hole. Tommen earlier, and things aren't going for so well for Tommen. Not only is his 
wife, the queen, in jail. Now, spoiler alert, and if you're listening to this, hopefully you've seen the episode, his mama is in jail. One of the things I really enjoyed about uh, this episode before Cersei went to jail was after she visited Marjorie and the smile, the smirk on her face after she came out of the, the cell with Marjorie, she was just so sure of herself and she thought she'd won the battle with the Tyrells. And later on, she gets her comeuppance, which a lot of people enjoy. I'm a big fan of Cersei because she's a three-dimensional character in my part. Linda Healy plays her to the hilt. She's probably one of the best actors, actresses on the show. So I enjoy all of that. And she's hot, so I go with that too. But... uh Another aspect of this is just Tommen is just such a little punk. You're the king. You've got to step up. You can't hide behind your mom's skirt. How can you just let them take your your wife, first of all? Then they're going to take your mom. This should have been ended. You have more power than they do, just from a military standpoint. But now you're going to make it harder and harder to get your wife and your mom back. It'll be interesting if you're a book reader. It'll be interesting to see how far they let that go. With Cersei, because there is more, there's more stuff coming in Cersei. If you're a show watcher, I will not ruin that for you. But there's some bad stuff coming in Cersei, and the book readers know what that is. So realistically, what what even Tommen's supposed to be 14 years old, he's not going to let these guys take his mom and his and his wife, the two most important people in his life. He's not going to let this happen when he has the power to stop it. I don't care how passive he is. You wouldn't think that would be something that people could even uh, – that, that anyone would allow when they have that, the power in their hands. So Cersei's plans backfires. Uh, Lancel comes, basically, and he's basically told the high sparrow of Cersei's bad deeds, and they are many, and she's taken to jail. It's interesting that Littlefinger before that has a scene with the Queen of Thorns, Lady Olena, and it's obvious last week that Loras' lover came from Littlefinger, and this week he promises, after being threatened by Lady Olena, he promises that another young boy or handsome young man, as he calls it, will come to aid, this time, the Tyrell. So you have Littlefinger doing his thing, playing the families off each other. I was confused about what that actually was, the handsome young man. He can't be talking about Loras, because when Loras converted to the uh, the faith militant, he would obviously have to confess his sins with Cersei, so the High Sparrow would already know that. So what um, handsome young man is, is Littlefinger talking about? Maybe it's obvious, but I've seen speculation. A lot of people can't really figure it out. And next week we have maybe it'll be interesting to see how the – I was going to call them Martells. They aren't the Martells. The Tyrell. Tyrell and Martell. It'll be interesting to see how the Tyrells get out of this situation. And it's just been wel- a welcome change to see Lady Olena, the Queen of Thorns in the book, to be on the screen. She's a great actress. I miss seeing her this season. She has some great se- se- uh, scenes with Charles Dance, who plays Tyrell Lannister, last year. And she had a really good scene, strong scene, with – the High Sparrow. And the High Sparrow, I like him as an actor, too. He basically is he's incorruptible. He's a religious fanatic, and he can't be changed. He can't be bribed. He's doing what he thinks is right. And Lady Olena, despite his zealotry, has, like, almost a begrudging respect, despite the fact that he has her grandchildren incarcerated. 
But that is definitely probably the scene of the episode. Cersei's going to jail, or Cersei does go to jail, and Game of Thrones fans rejoiced. I weep because Cersei's one of my favorites, free Cersei. But we shall see how that goes. Then we have a scene that might have been the most controversial, even though it probably doesn't seem controversial compared to the things that happened last week. But we have we go to Dorne. We have Jamie confronting Marcella. It's just standard teenage crying and whining. I don't know why any of this Dorne stuff is there other than give Jamie stuff to do. It just doesn't seem important. Seems tertiary to the other storylines. It's kind of fun at times, but there's not really a lot going on. Meanwhile, you have Bronn singing to his prison mates, the Sand Snakes. He engages a little playful banter with them. And then we have the great scene, which is not really that great, but we have one of the Sand Snakes come up there, and she does a little strip tease for Bronn. Now, I was a little distracted, but later on I read that the reason why she gave Bronn the strip tease was so the poison would travel to his head faster, and her doing the striptease would get his blood pressure or his blood flowing faster. <laughs> his storylines go. That's a little, that's a little much. But hey, I'll take it. She was, oh, the woman was amazing. But it's definitely some of the sex position that Game of Thrones <laughs> is infamous for. It, but they haven't done it as much this season, so we give it a pass. But basically, that scene was funny. It was sexy, it was pointless, it was a little hokey and corny as well, and that's everything that the Dorn storyline has been. So I think that scene is kind of a microcosm. The last place we're going to go to is Marine, and here we have Jorah and Tyrion. They get their big, well not confrontation, but they get their big meeting with Khaleesi. We start out with Khaleesi talking to Dario, and I like the line, all rulers are butchers or meat. Dario says, kill all the maesters, and everything will be okay. It, Khaleesi really doesn't know what she's doing in this thing. People talk about Cersei, about her being an incompetent ruler, but the way that Khaleesi or Danny shows leadership is she's indecisive, she doesn't really understand politics. Well, Cersei overplays her hand. Danny doesn't even know the cards that are in her hand. And she's lost advisors. Her most close or her most trusted advisor right now are a former slave who's her personal assistant and her lover. That is not the good thing. That is not a good arrangement for a small council. It's almost as weak as Cersei's small council. And now she has her husband, his dar, who is telling her all kinds of things. If you look at the stuff about Danny, before we get to Jorah and Tyrion coming to the fighting pits, they're coming as slaves. They're bringing slaves to the fighting pits, even though Danny has said slavery is illegal. She doesn't question where these people come from. She doesn't see anything wrong with it. And, and his dar's just like, this is tradition. And she just falls for it. I was disappointed by... The fighting pits, they just look like the JV fighting pits. I thought we were going to get a grand gladiator scene. Maybe they didn't have it in the budget, but it just seemed a little lame to get these JV fighting pits, the minor league fighting pits, instead of the big-time fire pits. I think it could have been a much bigger moment between Jorah and Tyrion and Khaleesi. But I don't know what the budget constraints are, so I'll give it that. But eh, it was a little lame. Then we have Jorah. He doesn't kill anybody, which is doing it for Khaleesi, I guess. But I thought the fight scene with Jorah wasn't as 
good as it could have been. He just kind of ran through everybody, and maybe he's a trained knight, so maybe he does run through it, but it just seemed kind of lame in general. I don't like that Khaleesi has no feelings for Jorah. There should be some complications between the two of them. It just shouldn't be, you betrayed me once, and it's all over. Grant, he betrayed her before he even knew who she really was, and he fell in love with her. And so now, and, and so there's no conflict. He watched her back for that all that time, faithfully, and now she's just like, oh, I'm done with you. There's no conflict. She immediately sends him away. She just doesn't have the three-dimensional emotional conflicts that some of the other characters have. I understand what Khaleesi represents. She represents Superwoman. But she, much like Superwoman or Superman, there's just the criticism is that there's boring. There's not enough of a challenge because she has all this power, but there's not enough conflict internally. What are Khaleesi's internal conflicts that we see on the screen? There aren't. They're all external, but none of them hit internally. But we do get the cool scene where Tyrion is the gift, and we get to see now she has a senior advisor that knows King's Landing and that is very smart. I don't think with with his father being dead, I don't think you can find a better hand of the king than Tyrion Lannister. To some to show up, they have a whole bunch of gifts that justify the episode's name. Jorah is a gift to Tyrion. I mean, Jorah is the gift. Sorry, I messed up. Jorah's gift of Tyrion Lannister to Danny is a gift. Littlefinger has a handsome young man as a gift. Cersei even brings a bowl of a bowl of leftover venison for Marjorie. That's a gift. Gilly gives the gift of sex to Sam. So we have it all kind of ties in, and I liked it. Even if you can look at it as the <laughs> the Sand Snake Girl was a gift to Braun and to the male viewers. This is a very good episode. I'd give it an A minus. I enjoyed it. If you guys have any thoughts or feedback or possible predictions for next week's episode, you can write it underneath the comment section on the Iconoclastically Bombastic site or the Game of Thrones Seven Kingdoms of Westeros Facebook group. You can write questions under there, too, and I'll try to respond to it next episode and look at your predictions. As always, this is Ronnie Carlton. I hope you have a great day. I welcome your feedback, conoclasticallybombastic.com. You can see all of our work. Thank you very much.